Well, let us give our attention to the reading of God's word. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. So ends the reading of our God's word. Let us ask his blessing on our time uh, in his word this morning. Heavenly Father, there is a way that seems right to men. But its end is the way of death. Good sense is a fountain of life, but folly is poison for the soul. Gracious words are like honeycomb, but the way of man brings only bitterness. And so, Father, our hope is to know the sweetness of your truth, to know the fountain of life. And so we ask that you would open your word, you'd quiet our strivings, you would open our ears, and let us hear your voice through your scriptures. Lead us, we pray, in the way everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. We hear it all the time when people talk about God uh, these days. If God is really there, why doesn't he make it more clear, more obvious? Or how can you prove his existence? Or if he wants people to believe in him, all he needs to do is, and then, you know, fill in the blank. There's always some suggestion given. There's a thousand, thousand variations. But they all come down to expectations, really. The expectation that knowing God is, is just like getting to know anything else in the universe. Uh, the expectation that God is, is somehow uh, insecure and worried about why more people don't believe in him. Uh, that God uh, wants belief to be easy, for faith to have no cost, to require no faith. And each expectation is flawed in so many ways. And in every expectation, who is at the center? It's man. And who is the needy beggar? It's always God. In every expectation, God is the one who bears all the cost and man bears none. In every one, the eyes of flesh, the way we see, is the standard and the eyes of faith are ignored. But what has Jesus been telling us in our study of Luke? In chapter 17, Jesus told us that his kingdom has arrived, uh, but is not visible to the human eye, that, that no one would be able to look and say, there it is, I see God's kingdom. But it's not just what we see that he tells us is different. It's the entire way his kingdom functions. He has been saying quite emphatically that that his ways are not our ways. 
that his kingdom functions radically different than our world functions. And that may, might uh, have been seen most clearly in that, in that parable he told at the beginning of chapter 18 about the Pharisee and the tax collector who both, both go up to the temple to pray. The Pharisee was a pious man. He was well-respected, uh, a well-known pillar in, in society, uh, and he was everything everyone wanted to be, the picture of devotion to God. The tax collector, on the other hand, was everything no one wanted to be. He was a shell of a man. He, could, he couldn't even lift his eyes as he drew near the temple. He could just stare at his feet. That's what the people saw. A well-respected, godly man and a blight on society. But Jesus saw one as full of pride acknowledging no need for God, no need for mercy, and the other one broken and humble and crying out for mercy. And it was that broken, humble tax collector who found mercy, who found eternal life and left with salvation. And so following that parable uh, have been a number of of episodes meant to drive that point home and to to illustrate what this looks like in real life. You see, we're really good at at agreeing with these principles in theory and then leaving them there and, and struggling or not wanting to see what they look like in real life. And so no sooner does Jesus tell this parable than these parents come up with their children and bring them to Jesus. And what do the disciples do? They rebuke them. Say, take these children away. Can't you see the master is busy? Because to the disciples, the children had nothing to offer. And Jesus says, exactly. Didn't you hear what I just said? Were you even listening? In fact, unless you become more like these children and acknowledge that you have nothing to give, nothing to offer, you will not see the kingdom of God. Then a wealthy Ruler approached Jesus. He was godly and he was devout, but he was enslaved to his money and he found his security in his wealth rather than his God. And unable to let go of his wealth, he went away without comfort, without hope. There are two more episodes meant to drive this home. Uh, Next time, Uh, Isaac's preaching next week, but the week after, Lord willing, we'll look at Jesus' encounter with the diminutive uh, tax collector, uh, Zacchaeus. Great story. Today we want to see his interaction with a blind beggar that Mark would tell us in his gospel was named Bartimaeus. Both of these episodes are are meant to, to carry forward that message that we've been hearing, but to emphasize each in each a particular point. And today we're going to see that God does not see how we see, and that means it's only those who have the eyes of faith, who learn to see by faith, who will recognize Jesus for who he truly is. In other words, the whole sermon comes down to this one simple point. Recognizing Jesus for who he is is a matter of faith, not sight. I couldn't put it simpler than that, but I'm going to take a few minutes to explain what that means, if you'll bear with me. Uh, we start, uh, or we're going to start by looking uh, at, at this crowd that is following Jesus as he approaches Jericho and kind of see what they see and what they think is going on. Then we want to look at the blind man and see what he saw 
what he thinks is going on. And of course, all this will lead us to ask how we uh, should respond and what we should see. Our passage is meant to bring to mind the parable of the Good Samaritan back in chapter 10. Uh, Jesus told that parable about a man who was on the road to Jericho uh, and fell in among some thieves and was beaten and left on the side on the side of the road. And so, so as we approach Jericho and there's this poor man on the side of the road, we're supposed to remember. Oh yeah, it's like the it's like the parable of the Good Samaritan. And the question is, how will the people respond to this man by the side of the road on the way to Jericho? Will they remember the the parable of the Good Samaritan? Will they show themselves to be good neighbors? Will they seek to serve him and care for him? Will they see value in the one whom society ignores? Will they be kind and gracious? They're being tested. And so Jesus says nothing at first. He just lets the crowd react or not react. Nothing Jesus said in in the parable of the Good Samaritan is new. Years, years, 1,500 years or more earlier, God had declared, Cursed be anyone who misleads a a blind man on the road. (laughs) Deuteronomy 27. In other words, show kindness to the blind man on the road. Here we are. Here's your chance. What will they do? All they saw was a a nuisance, an impediment to their enjoyment of the moment. After all, the great miracle worker they've been hearing about, the, the one from Nazareth, he's come to their little town. And here's their chance to see a miracle. Their opportunity to be a, a part of the biggest thing that has happened in Israel in years. Their FOMO is in high gear right now. And they're not allow, about to let this blind beggar ruin their chance to see the Nazarene at work. And when the beggar hears all the commotion, he asks, what's going on? And they told him, Jesus the Nazarene is passing through. And that response tells us so much about the crowd, doesn't it? How do they identify Jesus? His name and his hometown. That's all they can see. He's, he's a miracle worker. He's a teacher. He, he's a celebrity, a spectacle. And that's about it. Not someone who, who confronts pride and self-righteousness, not someone who abhors selfishness, not a Lord, not a Savior. They identify him by his name and his hometown. The beggar cries out to Jesus, and the people rebuke him. They tell him to shut up. Like, Like the children that the disciples forbid from coming to Jesus... The crowd doesn't see the beggar as worthy of Jesus' time and his attention. Their eyes work just fine, but they are missing so much. They're like those Isaiah talked about. Hearing they do not hear, seeing they do not see. But what about the blind beggar? 
Look at how he responds. He cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, that's, that's a loaded term. Throughout the Old Testament, there are so many prophecies about the coming Messiah who would bring salvation to God's people. Uh, Genesis told us that he would be born of a woman. Isaiah would later later clarify a a woman who's a virgin. Uh, Genesis also tells us that he would be a descendant of Abraham, born to the Jewish people, heir to the promises made to Abraham. Uh, one such prophecy in the Old Testament comes in 2 Samuel, and it's, it's made to King David, uh, 2 Samuel 7. And after David had become king, after a long and tumultuous time of oppression under Saul, he uh, finally becomes king, and, and, and there's this relative peace in the land finally, and he builds himself this great palace, and then he feels guilty that he has this wonderful home to live in. And he looks over, and he sees the tabernacle, the tent of meeting where, where God dwells, and he feels bad. I have this great palace. God's living in a tent. I'm going to build God a better house. And you remember what happens. Uh, uh, God sends the prophet, Nathan, to David. And God asks, have I ever complained about living in a tent? Again, a reminder that God's priorities aren't our priorities God doesn't see the way we see. David felt pity for God that he was essentially homeless living in a tent. And God says, have I ever complained? Do you think I need a big, fancy palace to feel secure? For those who have ears to hear, God is identifying with the homeless, the poor, That would later be proven when the God of David took on flesh and blood, came into this world, and the Bible tells us, and he pitched his tent among us, talking about his human body. And then, that's talking about Jesus, Jesus would go on and say, I have no permanent place to live. I have no home in this world, and I'm okay with that. But God didn't stop there. He told David that he would one day send a descendant, a son of David, to bring relief to his people. He would bring them relief from affliction and he would establish an eternal kingdom that would last forever. And when this blind beggar calls out to Jesus and and he calls Jesus son of David, that's what he's thinking. Is Jesus the one to deliver and establish him? Is Jesus the one who will fulfill the prophecies? Because there are other prophecies about the Messiah as well. Like Psalm 146, the Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. Or Isaiah 29, in that day the deaf shall hear and the eyes of the blind shall see. Because if Jesus is more than a Nazarene, if he's the long-awaited Messiah, if he's the son of David, then he's the eternal king who brings hope to God's people. The question is, is he? And the blind beggar says, yes. And he lays everything on the line because it's costly for him to do what he's doing here. When the people rebuke him and they try to silence him, he has to make a decision because Jesus is probably going to be gone tomorrow and he's going to be back to begging all his fellow townsmen. 
And he has to ask himself, do I risk upsetting all the people who I will be dependent upon tomorrow? Or do I just shut up and play the part? Do I place my hope in my neighbors and remain quiet? Or do I risk everything and place my entire future in Jesus' hands? And for him, the choice is not hard. As the people rebuke him, it says he determined all the more and cries out, shouts above the crowd, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped. And he commanded, I love that word, commanded that the beggar be brought to him. There, with all the crowd watching in silence, Jesus gives his undivided attention to this beggar. And he says, what do you want me to do for you? And the man's answer betrays who he sees Jesus to be. First, he calls him Lord, not not teacher, not Nazarene, not uh, miracle worker, but Lord. He bows before his God in humble submission. He says, Jesus, you are the God of Israel. And that is shown in what he says next. He says, I want to see again. Because if you're the God of Israel, if, if you are Lord, you said you will give sight to the blind. He lays it all on the line. He's not hedging. There's no room for plan B. It's Jesus or Nothing. And he sees Jesus as his only hope, his only source of mercy, the Savior, the Messiah. There's no pretension, there's no self-righteousness. As he sits before Jesus, there's only humility. Humility and hope. In Jesus, the blind beggar sees all he could ever hope for. What do we see in Jesus? We see what the crowd saw, what the beggar saw. But this is God's word to us this morning. What does he ask us? What does he tell us to see? He was being ushered into a town with great fanfare. The crowd is eating out of his hand. His popularity had had never been greater The crowd is roaring with their approval, even if all they saw was a Nazarene miracle worker. And Jesus put all that on hold to go meet with this blind beggar. And in that we see one who has absolute no interest in earthly glory. He has no interest in a kingdom that can be seen. He hasn't the the faintest desire for popularity or celebrity. We see a heart that is with the hurting and the downcast, the suffering and the rejected. It's that heart, it's that conviction that led him to come into this world and have no place, no honor, no home, and no palace. It led him to say things like we saw last week, about what awaited him in Jerusalem, betrayal to the Gentiles, flogging, mockery, ridicule, and eventually murder. He was willing to endure all of those things because because his mission 
was not about comfort and power and glory. It was about seeking and saving the lost. Saving sinners who cry out for mercy. People like this blind beggar before him. And so Jesus restored the man's sight. And as he did, he said, your faith has made you well. Or actually, uh, it would be better translated, your faith has saved you. Because Jesus isn't just talking about his physical healing, his restoration of sight. He's talking about the man's soul. The restoration of his sight was, was just an outward sign of what had happened inwardly. This man was able to see far better than the crowd around him before his sight was ever restored. That, that sight, that ability to see what is really going on, what's, what's really happening around him, Jesus calls faith. Your faith has made you well. Faith is not some wishful or positive thinking. It's not believing anything you want, trusting that God will make it true. Faith is believing God's word to be truth. Whatever else you say about the script about this beggar, it's clear that he knew his scriptures. But more than knowing them, he believed them. Everything he had heard up about Jesus up to this point matched with the God he knew from his Bible. Everything he he had heard lined up with what the scriptures said the Messiah would be. When he calls Jesus the son of David, he's speaking out of a heart of faith. He believed the promises of God. He put his trust in Jesus and that faith saved him. We don't want to completely dismiss the crowd. Verse 42 tells us that that when they saw the blind man healed, they gave praise to God. When they saw the unmistakable power of God, they rejoiced. They came around, albeit slowly. And we're supposed to rejoice for them. But they're not the model being held out to us. They saw, believed, and are blessed, but the beggar believed without seeing and is more blessed. Might sound familiar. You believe because you've seen me, but more blessed are those who haven't seen me and believe anyway. So that's what Jesus told Thomas at the end of John's Gospel. If we're honest with ourselves, we're more bound by what we can see than we'd like to acknowledge. When the world questions why God doesn't act how how we expect him to act, our hearts tend to resonate with them more than we want to admit. Yeah, why doesn't he do that? Why doesn't he just make it visible for everyone to see? It would be so much easier. When Jesus says his kingdom is not of this world and it's not visible to the eyes of flesh, we struggle to understand why. When he says that the way to glory is the path of affliction. We question the wisdom and the necessity of such a way. When he says that those who wish to be great must be servants of all, we we look for a different way. 
We struggle to understand and believe all that Jesus says. But we're in good company. Do you remember what we saw last week at the end of our passage? After telling his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and be betrayed and beaten and mocked and murdered, Luke tells us, but they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them and they did not grasp what was said. Jesus spoke clearly and his disciples said, I don't get it. Learning to see with the eyes of faith and not the eyes of our flesh is hard. It is really hard. It is not instinctive or innate for any of us. Trusting the Bible over our senses and our own expectations does not come naturally. But the Lord has given us a few things to help. The first is the Bible. We need to be in it every day, reading it, letting it shape us, change us, renew us, remake us. Bathed in God's word, we need to learn to hear his voice above our own and to believe all that he has to say. And we need to be under the preaching of it because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the preaching of the word, Romans 10 tells us. But there's something else that God has given us. At the end of of Luke, uh, we're going to see, we are getting closer, I promise, We're going to read about the risen Christ, the risen Jesus, coming across two of his disciples walking along another road. And we're told that their eyes were kept from recognizing him. He came up and started talking to them, and they don't know it's the risen Jesus. They're like that crowd we saw today, seeing they did not see. But then Jesus begins to open the scriptures to them, how it was necessary for the Christ, the Messiah, to suffer all these things and then enter into his glory. And from from Moses and the prophets and the beginning to the end of the Old Testament scriptures, he shows them it was all about this from the beginning. But Luke tells us it was not until he broke bread with them that their eyes were opened and they recognized him. There's something about that act of breaking bread that forces us to remember that that the way to glory is through suffering. In the breaking of bread, which is the Lord's Supper, we're reminded that Jesus came into this world not to be served, but to serve and to offer his life in death as a sacrifice for many. And in that, we see the way of God. Not what we expect, but what is true. And so it's fitting that this morning we would close our time in God's word by breaking bread. The Lord's Supper is meant to open your eyes, the eyes of faith, and to help you recognize Jesus for who he truly is. He won't meet your expectations. He will not do what you think he should. He is far greater than that. He seeks and he saves the lost. He gives sight to the blind. And he saves those who call him Lord and cry out for mercy. So I'd like to ask the elders to come forward that we might receive uh, this gift this morning.
Our gracious Savior, we thank you that you love the lowly, that you rescue the hurting, and that you give sight to the blind. As we struggle to see your kingdom and understand your ways, we pray that you would give us the eyes of faith, that we would see through your eyes, that we might learn to see the world as you do and walk in your ways. Teach us the lesson of the blind beggar so that we might more and more to learn to cry out to you and in crying out to you, find mercy. Amen.